Dr. Alan Leica here, and I'd like to welcome you to How to Live a Fantastic Life Show, where we will be discussing the important aspects of your life. We hope to inspire you to live the best life you can. Get out of your comfort zone and explore the awesome world around you. Break through your barriers. Take inspired action. Use the difficulties in your life to achieve the best version of you. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have a very special guest by the name of Bew White. Bew left the family business and started his own company called Summer Classics, where he designs, creates, and builds beautiful furniture. The book, A Summer Classic, The Bew White Story, helps readers jump into the wealth of experience that Bew White has. He offers crucial information and lessons in both life and business to those who have ambition, but perhaps not the roadmap to success. Welcome, you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, tell us a little bit. About like doctor. <laughs> yeah. So doctor. Tell us about yeah, just Doc Leica or Alan Leica. It doesn't really matter. Okay. You know, okay. let's let's just talk a little bit about you and what, what it meant to change from a family business to your own stick. How did you get into that? It's like diving off a cliff, you know, and you can't see the water down there. So if you if you've you know looked at the book, I, I left uh, really, you know, I was 28 years old and I had just gotten promoted. and I was making my salary was going to be sixty five thousand dollars a year, which that was 1978. So that's a pretty good number back then. And I took a I bought part of a small company here in Birmingham. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, that made furniture. I got out of the, by the way, this company that I was, that my great grandfather started back in the late uh, 19th century was a Fortune 500 company making textiles, selling to the Levi Strauss, Wrangler, Bluebell, you know, um, HD Lee, those big, big, uh, back then they were cutters that were making mostly jeans, but they sold a lot of different, you know, entities. They were the largest yarn manufacturer in the United States as well. So, um, and I had some stock, and so I sold 25% of my stock to, to do this new venture. And after I got in there, I realized I had made a huge mistake really quick. And I, and I left after nine months the company that I had bought part of because the money I put in just went, got sucked up into payroll. You know, this is like nothing for them. And so uh, I, I could see they were getting ready to start bouncing checks to, for payroll. And I was like, well, there's no way this is going to make it. So I need to get out and get, do my own thing. So I started a, another company and went out on my own and uh, starved to death for a while. But that worked out much better. So within uh, 18 months, I started making six figures. So I said, okay, well, this may be, work out. I don't know how long you want me to go. <laughs> oh, so let's go and dive into your furniture business. Here yeah, you so were then, in these businesses that weren't making it, but then you jumped right into the furniture business. And another one that's that's a little scary for a lot of people to jump into your own business where you haven't got a blueprint, where you haven't got somebody helping you along the way, and all of a sudden you're there. Yeah. I have, uh, it's interesting because 
I go to a group called the Executive Leadership Group here, and they were talking about they, this interviews that they were doing with people that were 95 and what were their regrets in life. The main one was I didn't take enough risk. And I went, hey, I like to, I think I took too many risks. So that one doesn't bother me at all. You know, like, so I, so when I left there, um, I started my own company. I picked up a bunch of clients. I became a sales rep. And uh, that was great. I made a lot of money doing that. But I was, I was like, I, this is not going to work. I need something where it's not so dependent on me. I got to get in the business where, where I don't have to come to work every day, even if I didn't, you know, if I, if I didn't have to, I need people under me that that can run the business. So I started about eight or 10 different companies. I got into the wicker business, the capiche shell business, the antique leather business, all kinds of different businesses to try to figure out what I could do, what would work for me. And uh, so during that process, I started uh, summer classics and I was I was selling my primary lines were outdoor furniture, so I, I knew that business. And so these other companies were called Vista Corporation. And then one day the receptionist came in my office and said, "Mr. White, I answered the phone, Vista Corporation, but really almost every time I do, they say, is this Summer Classics?'" And I went, "Okay, when you go back to your desk, answer the phone, Summer Classics." And I kind of went, "Okay, this is it. I'm going with this one." So I uh, like got rid of all those other businesses I was working on and just concentrated on this outdoor furniture business called Summer Classics, and that's that's what it took a long time to work. I was kind of, I can remember going to my wife going like I think I need to get a job. This just doesn't seem to be working. I've been paying myself forty one thousand dollars a year for eight years, and I just don't see any way this is going to click. And she would go. You can do it. I believe in you. It's going to work. I promise you. And it's like, she's right. And it, it did. It took another 10 years from that point to work, but it worked. It, it took several. You were an overnight success several years in the making. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we doubled every three and a half years since I started the company. So, I mean, if you don't, you know what the big problem is when you're growing that fast is you're constantly run out of money and we're seasonal. So, you only made money six or seven months a year and you lose, you try to not lose as much as you made the prior year and then get to the next year and make more. And, and so that, you know, the profits in the first years were like 25,000, 50,000 a year. And I was like, man, this is doesn't seem like it's going to work. And then eventually that became a hundred thousand. And then, you know, essentially I started, a, I had a group come to me that, that's, Want to do phantom stock, and I, I had researched it, and I agreed. I said, "Okay, we're going to do phantom stock, but it's no good until you make a million dollars three years in a row." And they would look at me and go, "Like, there's no way. There's no way we can make a million dollars three years." I said, "Nope, we're going to do it. Watch." And sure enough, you know, we once we got there, it was easy. We just, we were we were had already made it to that level. Now the numbers are much bigger than that, but it was. They got stock, and some of them have I've paid out all of them so far, and some of them had got several million dollars for their stock. So, it turned out to be a good decision on my part and theirs too. Now that's that's huge, and and, and that's yeah. important. So, now that you're there, now that you're there, <clears throat> looking back to your younger self, what advice would you give your younger self? 
Well, probably not to have regrets. I got to go back to that 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 talk. <laughs> yeah, I actually give a, a after dinner rehearsal speech about no regrets, and I think that's you've got to always kind of be looking forward and not backwards. And so that's and being an optimist is really important, you know. So you got to constantly be optimistic. Your your uh, staff will notice if you're not, you know. So you wanna you wanna have this constant optimistic tone. That doesn't mean you have to be positive all the time, but you you want to be optimistic. I think there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. And so uh, I think that's that's some of it. I mean, if you want to be an entrepreneur, there's there's six traits that you've got to have. I'd say that if I was giving somebody some advice and I have these people come see me, ask me how I do it. I said, well, if you're saying you want to do it, you got to, if you're an entrepreneur, you got to have these six traits or you, it's not going to work. And they go like, okay, well, what are those? Visionary, passionate, risk taker, driven, that risk takers. That's the one that kind of wipes out a lot of people. They're just, they may buy some stocks or something, but they don't consider themselves risk takers as is, you know, like I used to put up my house every year. I'll take all the equity out of my house and put it in the company because of that transition. I said, where we lose money six months a year. So the bank would force me to do it, but I did it for like 11 years. Problem solver is another one of those. So I'm not sure if I gave you all six. Oh, um, yeah. Which, which area do you think you exceed in of all those areas? Driven, probably. I'd say driven. Risk taker and driven, but r- driven. driven. I, I don't know where it comes from, but if you got it, you can't, think, you can't get rid of it. It's like I used to go to my wife and go like, this is driving me crazy. I can't sleep. I'm so driven, you know, to move on to the next thing or get you know, or hit my numbers or whatever it is that yeah, just, it drives you nuts. And it's, I think it's, it's in your genes. I had, you know, interesting. I give a history lesson every month to new employees. And last, on last month's history lesson, somebody asked me about, and I wasn't, I didn't give them this correlation of the six things you had to have to be an entrepreneur. And um Said they said, "What is that? Is that driven? You seem like you're really driven. Is that a gene, or did you develop that?" And I went, "I don't know if you can develop that, but no, it's a gene. And it's like it's a gene that will drive you crazy." And I'm not sure. I was happy I got it, but I've got it. I think problem solver is another one. I can't remember if I brought that one up. Yeah, you did. And problem yeah. I'd say that may be my weaker one, but I do spend a lot. I mean, that's basically you spend so much time solving problems because you're, I say I have an MBA in mistakes and I'm working on my PhD now. So I, you, if you can't solve a problem, you're going to be in trouble all the time. I had a, I had a $30 million problem one time. I was like, the staff, the, particularly the customer service staff said, we're going to go out of business. I said, no, we're not. We're going to work through this. Watch. I'm going to, I'm going to show you how this is going to work. And I came up with an idea that took the 30 million and spread it out over about eight years. It didn't, it ended up not being 30 million, but it ended up probably being 10 million. And it it really hurt our reputation. It was a paint issue, which we didn't have anything to do with. It was a Sherwin Williams issue, but they weren't going to fix it or pay for it. And so we ended up just having to take care of all those clients over a period of years and, 
some of our customers got really upset about, you know, the, having to deal with it. I don't blame, but we got through. And at the end of the tunnel, you're much happier now than you were back then. Yeah, it's just, uh, oddly enough, that tunnel's just about two years from being over. So it took a really long time to, that, that we found out about that problem in 2004. We thought we had it fixed in 2006. We didn't, so it reoccurred, and it just fixed itself. What, so 2018 or something like that. Finally, no more, no more of that paint problem occurred, or we didn't have any more calls about it. But it's, it took a long time. Well, it's tough when, because you know you do something, you make some furniture that you think is going to work. You you put some paint on it, or, or the paint is on it, and then all of a sudden the paint that you thought was supposed to work the way that it was supposed to is no longer working the way you thought it was supposed to. Yeah. And then you try to deal with these multinationals. You say, well, Sherwin Williams has a great reputation and they did not stand behind their product. And I was going like, wow, I, I, I didn't expect that. So we had to set up a whole lab here to check paint as it comes in. To, so we don't have that problem again. So that was one of my, problem solving <laughs> what can we do to prevent this from happening ever again but well, we have to set up a lab in in the factories and we have to set up a lab here and then do uv testing and and uh, salt water spray testing like the automotive companies do and that's i mean as you can see if you remember the bmw paint problem they had they were having to take cars back and repaint them or throw them away because they couldn't fix this paint problem so it happens it does, and, and you know, it's it's interesting how you you came across this. But there there was no way you would have known before the problem materialized. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I set up I mean, I, when I was in New York. I was, I was with uh, Avondale Mills, my great grandfather's company, and I, I was saying back we back then everything was made in the United States, so you didn't have this international uh, making of apparel. And one of the first people I called on was Ralph Lauren because I was fascinated with his model, but he couldn't meet our minimums. But I just kept calling on him. I was like, how, did, how does this work? I, I, this Your model seems really different than everybody else's. And he's, he, it's not, I really talked to his brother, not him. He said, well, we concentrate on branding and um, building a, and, and advertising, marketing and we have other people make product for us and we'll give them specs and then they make everything to our spec. And then, and that way we could be incredibly flexible. So when I got on the road and started selling, I was selling people that, that had factories and their factory made a certain product. And then the market would change to something they couldn't make. And they would come to me and go like, why aren't you selling more of our product? I said, well, the market's changed. I'm selling this now. Make that. I'll sell that. And they're like, we can't make that. We're, our factory makes this. I was like, man, somebody needs to work on just, a, a, you know, have a company that makes what the customer wants to buy and not be so focused on on their fact, running their factory. And so that's where I, how I set this up as, uh, as being very flexible, nimble, you know, and being able to move from from uh, wherever the market was going. So, you you know, you'd, you'd set up a factory overseas and they'd say, okay, we're going to make this stuff. We want all your business. I said, well, if the market wants wood and you don't want to make wood, and I think the rest of the world, the market's going, I'm going over there and you can come with me. But if you don't, 
I'm just telling you, a lot of your business is going to go away because this market's fickle and it moves from you know, product to product. So that's exactly what happened. I, had, had it, I actually had this huge factories in Mexico, and when China came in, I said, hey, I could sell you at your prices. The, the market's going to move, and I can't take a chance on losing it. So I'm not going to drop you, but if, the, if your stuff stops stop selling because your price points are too high, you're going to lose your business. And that's what happened. And now it's kind of moved, shifting back to the United States. So I think that's a good thing. I don't know if it's sustainable, but it's good. There you go, you're in, and, and by shifting like that, I think you're in more control of the situation. And you're not, you're not have all your assets tied up in factories that may or may not run because of your and then your your working process, all the things that are involved in manufacturing. Now we do make our own cushions, and that's probably twenty five percent of our volume. And we make our own upholstery. Same thing. This is about thirty five percent of our volume in the indoor business. So, so we do have that. I, I consider it to be almost a problem, but it also gives us um, because we design our own fabrics. We've used that as our differentiation that helps us be different than everybody else. And hopefully people pay more for that. But you're right. There you are. Points of differentiation is also very important to your business. But also, so you're unique in certain respects as well. Well, in the in the outdoor furniture business, for sure. But if you look at Apple, they don't make their product. They have to other people make it. Or Nike, same thing. Have other people make it. Or Ralph Lauren, have other people make it. There's a bunch of people in the apparel business that just design and have it made to their spec at a factory of their choosing. I've chosen to do it a little bit different and, and try to have factories that only make our product. And that way, you don't have your competition coming in your factory looking at what you're doing, and you can control your quality better. So I have staff in the plants. That, that look at quality, and then I, we have incredibly high specs, way higher specs than anybody in the industry. In other words, products that you can put outside for 20 years in the sun or on the ocean and and last. And, uh, and so the factories don't really like doing that because the cost of the materials is sometimes double or triple what they would be if you did. And they would look exactly the same, by the way. And so you're talking about architectural grade paints, going back to the paint issue, and uh, resins that last. Like if you look at a McDonald's sign, they're generally made of plastic. I, I, I do this because this is kind of the way I think. But they're yellow, and yellow is one of the worst UV problems. And so if you look at their signs, how quick they fade, you'd be amazed how quick those golden arches fade and their signs fade. And so you're the high U, they have to have really high UV in those signs. Otherwise, they'd be taking the arches down and having to replace all the plastic on the outside. And our same way. So, what the theory behind the whole company was you would buy, you and your wife would buy the product and you'd take it home and you're like, wow, we sure did pay a lot for that. And then 10 or 20 years later, it would look the same. And the idea of summer classics is it will be classical style, even if it's modern, and you'd still like it 15 or 20 years later. You say, well, I've had this for 15 years. It still looks great. And then you would tell other people, and then that was, they would say, this, hey, you need to buy summer classics. You won't have to buy it again. And 
So that was the theory. I, and the, the interesting thing is, so I had the Walmart uh, quality control person in my showroom in uh, Chicago. And I, you know, I, I waited on her and walked her around. I was like, you know, you can't afford it. So, yeah, I know. But I just wanted to look around and see, you know, what the cool stuff looks like. I said, hey, does y'all have quality? You have UV specs on paint? I said, yes, of course we do. Of course we do. So we are, we're 2,000 hours on paint. That's equivalent to five years. And so I, I said, well, do you know what they are? She said, yeah. I said, do you mind telling me? No, no. So what are they? She said, they're 90 hours, and the buyers are trying to get me to change to lower it. I was like, you realize that's not even three months, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, but we own our customers. I was like, you own What do you mean? What do you mean you own your customers? She said, well, they'll buy it, and then, you know, if it only lasts one season, they'll throw it away and buy new. I was like, that's kind of, that seems a little cocky to me, but okay. I never heard that on your customer. You <laughs> like, getting, wow. You're, wow, that's amazing. And it, it's, it, it's very cocky like, on your part. On our customers, I'm like, be careful. Bob, you, I'm going to ask you two questions that I like to summarize mm-hmm. my show with. And one's a okay. personal question for you. You know, you've learned a lot from life and business. How do you have a fantastic life? I do have a fantastic life. Well, you know, there's one saying I say is great wife, great life, fantastic wife, fantastic life. So I think, and I, and I use my wife as an example because she is fantastic. But you could use that with any, you know, you, you use it with your religion, with your relationship with God or, or with other human beings, your friends, you know, however you want to use that saying. It doesn't, they don't necessarily rhyme with uh, life. <laughs> you know? My wife said, so I can't say great husband, great life, because it doesn't rhyme. I said, well, you could say it, but it's not as, it's not as cute. But uh, that, I think that's that's really critical part of my life. And I also think uh, futuristically and, and don't, I think we have a time, you know, everybody has tragedies. And certainly in this, if you read my book, you're going to see there's lots of tragedies in there. But being optimistic and what I, what I, you know, of course, I've traveled the world, so I've seen how other people live. And I constantly when I get in that situation where a tragic situation, whether it's a death in the family or I lost, uh, you know, the, the 30 million dollar problem I talked about. I always think what a great life I've got, how blessed I've been and how incredible it is just to live in the United States comes up all the other countries I've been in, you know, we're, we don't realize, certainly people that haven't been to these other places don't realize how blessed you are. And, you know, when I had this factories in, uh, in Mexico, I used to I'd go to their weddings down there and take my kids. I'll say, okay, we're driving across the border and you're going to see a dramatic difference. And there's only one difference between Mexico and the United States. And it's the land. It's the land. It's going across the Rio Grande. But that's not it. It's politics, guys. You need to vote. It's really important. You've got a chance to vote. You need to use it because you could be like this instead of like us. And it's just 
this lane, you know what I'm saying? It's just a difference in going across the Rio Grande and see what Mexico's like and see what U.S. is like. It's really, not that there's anything, I love Mexico, but they do have a political problem. Well, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, you've learned a lot from your business. You've learned a lot from travel. You've learned a lot from living. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've been visiting with Bu uh, with Bu White, who uh, runs a business called Summer Classics, where he designs, creates, and builds beautiful furniture. You know, he has used this as an analogy for his life, and he's written a phenomenal book called A Summer Classic: The Bu White Story. Bu, uh, how can people get a copy of this book if they'd like? Uh, you can go on Amazon. You can go to viewwhite.com. They'll probably flip you to Amazon. The interesting thing is that, you know, I'm a big Audible guy, and my roommate in college is an actor, producer, director. And by the way, he married Miss Universe. And he called me and said, I want to read your book on Audible. I was like, okay, great. And so I'm listening to him the other day. <laughs> like, it's not that I need to hear the book again. But um, I said, I called him and said, hey, you know, yeah, a couple of part, parts I was listening, you're like crying. Are you really crying or is that acting? <laughs> he said, I don't know which part was it. I was like, okay, you're acting. <laughs> you would remember because you. I, it sounded like you were crying like, you know, buffalo tears or something. <clears throat> well, that's cool. And, and that's, that's yeah. really important. So unfortunately, we're at our end here. Ladies okay. and gentlemen, if you like the show on whatever platform you're on, please say you like it. Or if you're on a radio station, please uh, get in touch with some of the people that are making it, that putting the show on and let them know you like it so we can build up other people following. Thank you very much. And thank you for being part of my show today. Thanks, Dr. Allen. Thank you. Bye for now. You've been listening to How to Live a Fantastic Life. Be sure and pick up a copy of Dr. Leica's book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, on Amazon.com. And you'll want to subscribe right here on this page so you don't miss a single episode. Have a fantastic day. Fantastic.